Magnolia Christi Americana, or The Ecclesiastical History of New England, from its first planting in the year 1620 unto the year of our Lord, 1698. By Cotton Mather. Book 7, Chapter 2. Little Foxes, or The Spirit of Rigid Separation in One Remarkable Zealot, Vexing the Churches of New England, and the spirit of giddy familism in another, and some lesser controversies arising about the cross in the banner, and about swearing on the Gospels. Hic se aperit diabolus. That is, here the devil shows himself. 1. It is remarkable that in the sacred annals of that matchless and blessed church history, which our God has given us in our Bible, there is a special mark often set upon the first persons that were eminent in this or that way of sinning, and were upon that score the chief of sinners. And they who have observed this remarkable have particularly marked the infamous Korah, the first rebel against the divine church order established in the wilderness, as one instance to confirm the observation. There are some, not thoughtless persons, who, in numbering the troublesome and scandalous things that have disturbed us in our new English wilderness, have complained of a crime which they have distinguished by the name of Korahism, or that litigious and leveling spirit with which the separation has been leavened. Now, though I would choose rather to leave a veil than a scar upon the memory of any person that by his miscarriage hath made himself too memorable, yet our church history will but be an unfinished piece if we do not set a mark upon that man who was one of the first that made themselves notable by their opposition to the church order of these plantations. And this we may the more freely do because of an injunction upon us to mark them that cause divisions. 2. In the year 1654, a certain windmill in the Low Countries, whirling round with extraordinary violence by reason of a violent storm then blowing, the stone at length by its rapid motion became so intensely hot as to fire the mill, from whence the flames being dispersed by the high winds, did set a whole town on fire. But I can tell my reader that, about twenty years before this, there was a whole country in America, like to be set on fire by the rapid motion of a windmill in the head of one particular man. Know then that about the year 1630 arrived here one Mr. Roger Williams, who, being a preacher that had less light than fire in him, hath by his own sad example preached unto us the danger of that evil which the Apostle mentions in Romans 10.2, they have a zeal but not according to knowledge. Upon his arrival, the Church of Salem invited him to assist Mr. Skelton in the charge of their souls, but the governor and council, fearing lest not only the church would soon come to have nothing of Salem in it, but also that the whole political as well as ecclesiastical constitution of the country would suffer by employing a minister of his character, did advise them to desist from laying hands too suddenly upon him. 
and that which increased in them the suspicion of his ill character was partly indeed his refusing to communicate with the Church of Boston, because they would not make a public and solemn declaration of repentance for their communicating with the Church of England, while they were in the realm of England, which the new English reformers thought then would be to carry the matter as far beyond their sense as the vulgar translation hath done to the text in Luke 15.8, where instead of Everit Domum, she swept the house, it reads Avertit Domum, or she overset it. But partly his violent urging that the civil magistrate might not punish breaches of the first table in the laws of the Ten Commandments, which assertion, besides the door which it opened unto a thousand profanities, by not being duly limited, it utterly took away from the authority all capacity to prevent the land, which they had purchased on purpose for their own recess from such things, it becoming such a sink of abominations, as would have been the reproach and ruin of Christianity in these parts of the world." The church taking the advice of their fathers in the state on this occasion, Mr. Williams removed unto Plymouth, where he was accepted as a preacher for two years ensuing. Third, but at Plymouth, his turbulent and singular opinions, not finding the entertainment which he expected, he desired a dismission back to Salem from them, and they, perceiving the giddy courses of separation, whereto he would abandon himself, and whereby he might endanger them, wisely humored what he desired. Coming to Salem, in the time of Mr. Skelton's illness, the church, affected with the fierceness of his talking in public and the starchedness of his living in private, so far forgot themselves as to renew their invitations unto him to become their pastor. And though the government again renewed their advice unto the people to forbear a thing of such ill consequence, yet they rashly pursued their motion, and he quickly accepted it. It happened that soon after this the church made suit unto the court for a parcel of land, which lay commodious for their affairs, but the court, offended at the slight lately put upon them, delayed their grant of what the church petitioned for, Whereupon, incensed Mr. Williams, and chanced the church to join with him in writing letters of admonition unto all the churches whereof any of the magistrates were members, that they might admonish the magistrates of scandalous injustice for denying this petition. The neighboring churches, both by petitions and messengers, took such happy pains with the church of Salem as presently recovered that holy flock to a sense of his aberrations, which Mr. Williams perceiving, though he had a little before bragged, that of all the churches in the world those of New England were the purest, and of all in New England that whereof himself was the teacher. Yet he now, staying at home, sent unto the church of Salem, then assembled a letter to give them notice— that if they would not separate, as well from the churches of New England as of old, he would separate from them. His more considerate church, not yielding to these lewd proposals, he never would come to their assemblies any more. No, 
nor hold any communion in any exercise of religion with any person, so much as his own wife, that went up unto their assemblies. But at the same time he kept a meeting in his own house, whereto resorted such as he had infected with his extravagancies. Fourth, These things were, indeed, very disturbant and offensive, but there were two other things in this Quixotism that made it no longer convenient for the civil authority to remain unconcerned about him. For, first, whereas the King of England had granted a royal charter unto the governor and company of this colony, which patent was indeed the very life of the colony, this hot-headed man publicly and furiously preached against the patent as an instrument of injustice, and pressed both rulers and people to be humbled for their sin in taking such a patent and utterly throw it up. On an insignificant pretense of wrong thereby done unto the Indians, which were the natives of the country, therein given to the subjects of the English crown. Secondly, an order of the court upon some just occasion had been made that an oath of fidelity should be, though not imposed upon, yet offered unto the freemen, the better to distinguish those whose fidelity might render them capable of employment in the government, which order this man vehemently withstood on a pernicious pretense that it was the prerogative of our Lord Christ alone to have his office established with an oath, and that an oath being the worship of God, carnal persons, whereof he supposed there were many in the land, might not be put upon it. These crimes at last procured a sentence of banishment upon him. Fifth. The court, about a year before they proceeded unto the banishment of this incendiary, sent for the pastors of the neighboring churches, to intimate unto them their design of thus proceeding against him, which they were loath to do, before they had advised the elders of it, because he was himself an elder. Mr. Cotton, with the consent of the other ministers, presented a request unto the magistrates that they would please to forbear prosecuting of him till they themselves with their churches had in a church way endeavored his conviction and repentance. For they alleged that they hoped his violences proceeded rather from a misguided conscience than from a seditious principle. The governor foretold unto them, You are deceived in the man, if you think he will condescend to learn of any of you. However, the proposal of the ministers was approved and allowed. But several of the churches, having taken the best pains they could, though they happily brought the church of Salem to join with them in dealing with the man, yet the effect was that he renounced them all as no churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whereupon the court ordered his removal out of the jurisdiction. Sixth. One passage that happened at his trial was a little odd. He complained in open court that he was wronged by a slanderous report, as if he, quote, held it unlawful for a father to call upon his child to eat his meat, end quote. Mr. Hooker, then present, being moved hereupon to speak something, replied, Why? 
You will say as much again if you stand to your own principles or be driven to say nothing at all. Mr. Williams, expressing his confidence that he should never say it, Mr. Hooker proceeded, If it be unlawful to call an unregenerate person to pray, since it is an action of God's worship, then it is unlawful for your unregenerate child to pray for a blessing upon his own meat. If it be unlawful for him to pray for a blessing upon his meat, it is unlawful for him to eat it, for it is sanctified by prayer, and without prayer, unsanctified. 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. If it be unlawful for him to eat it, it is unlawful for you to call upon him to eat it, for it is unlawful for you to call upon him to sin. Hereupon, Mr. Williams chose to hold his peace rather than make any answer. Such the giddiness, the confusion, the anto-catacritic of that sectarian spirit. I have read of a gentleman who had an humor of making singular and fanciful expositions of Scripture. But one Dr. Sim gave him a dose of physic, which, when it had wrought, the gentleman became orthodox immediately, and expounded at the old rate no more. Pity this Dr. Sim had but undertaken the cure of our Mr. Williams. 7. Upon the sentence of the court, Mr. Williams with his party going abroad, as one says, to seek their providences, removed into the southern parts of New England, where he, with a few of his own sect, settled a place called Providence. There they proceeded not only unto the gathering of a thing like a church, but unto the renouncing of their infant baptism. And at this further step of separation they stopped not, but Mr. Williams quickly told them, quote, that being himself misled, he had led them likewise out of the way, end quote. He was now satisfied that there was none upon earth that could administer baptism, and so that their last baptism, as well as their first, was a nullity, for the want of a called administration. He advised them, therefore, to forego all, to dislike everything, and wait for the coming of new apostles, whereupon they dissolved themselves, and became that sort of sect which we term seekers, keeping to that one principle, quote, that everyone should have the liberty to worship God according to the light of his own conscience, end quote. But owning of no true churches or ordinances now in the word. It is a memorable reflection made on this occasion by Mr. Cotton in a book which he published for his own vindication from the printed calumnies of Mr. Williams. Quote, it is a wise proverb, saith he, of a wiser than Solomon, the backslider in heart from any truth or way of God shall be filled with his own ways. They that separate from their brethren further than they have just cause shall at length find cause, or at least think they have found cause just enough to separate from one another. I never yet heard of any instance to the contrary, either in England or Holland, and for New England there is no such church of the separation at all that I know of. That separate church, if it may be called a church, which separated with Mr. Williams, first broke into a division about a small occasion, as I have heard, and then broke forth into Anabaptism, 
and then into anti-baptism and familism, and now finally into no church at all. End quote. Eight. Mr. Williams, after this, was very instrumental in obtaining a charter for the government of Rhode Island, which lay near and with his town of Providence, and was by the people sometimes chosen governor. But for the most part, he led a more private life. It was more than forty years after his exile that he lived there, and in many things acquitted himself so laudably that many judicious persons judged him to have had the root of the matter in him during the long winter of this retirement. He used many commendable endeavors to Christianize the Indians in his neighborhood, of whose language, tempers, and manners he printed a little relation with observations, wherein he spiritualizes the curiosities with two-and-thirty chapters, whereof he entertains his reader. There was always a good correspondence always held between him and many worthy and pious people in the colony, from whence he had been banished, though his keeping still so many of his dangerous principles kept the government, unto whose favor some of the English nobility had by letters recommended him, from taking off the sentence of his banishment. And against the Quakers he afterwards maintained the main principles of the Protestant religion with much vigor and some disputations, whereof he afterwards published a large account in a book against George Fox and Edward Burroughs, which he entitled George Fox Digged Out of His Burroughs. But having reported thus much concerning Mr. Williams, we shall now supersede further mention of him with the mention of another difference which happened in our primitive times, wherein he was, indeed, but obliquely and remotely concerned. 9. It was about the year 1633 that one in some authority, under the heat of some impressions from the ministry of Mr. Williams, did by his own authority cut the red cross out of the king's colors to testify a zeal against the continuance or appearance of a superstition. This hot action met with a warm censure, and besides the mischiefs hereby occasioned among the trained soldiers, whereof some were loath to follow the colors which had the cross, lest they should put honor upon a popish idol, Others were loath to follow the colors which had not the cross, lest they should seem to cast off their allegiance to the crown of England. The business fell under agitation in the general court. The freemen of the colony showed their displeasure at the gentleman, chiefly concerned in this business, by discarding him from his place in the government, and a committee of those freemen chosen by both magistrates and people, judged him to be guilty of a great offense and worthy of admonition, and so to be one year disabled for bearing any public office. And harder sentence was not passed because real tenderness and persuasion of conscience, and not any ill-affected mind, was the real original of his offense— but so hard a sentence was passed as a signification of the desire which was rooted in the heart of the country to approve themselves in all points thorough Englishmen and good subjects. Now, 
Though the action of defacing the colors was generally disapproved, yet the right of the cross in the banner became on this occasion a matter of controversy, wherein many pious and able men were differently persuaded, and some of our chief worthies maintained their different persuasions with weapons indeed no more dangerous than easy pens, and effects no worse than a little harmless and learned inkshed, it will not be a thing unuseful or unpleasant unto a curious reader to have a brief display of that controversy. 10. On the one side, they that pleaded against the use of the cross and the banner argued after this manner. The question is not whether a private man may not march after his colors, which have the cross in them, for the Christian legions never scrupled following the labarum, imperial standard, of the Roman emperor, which was an idolatrous ensign. Yea, the Jews themselves, that made such earnest suit, first unto Pilate and then unto Petronius, to have such an idolatrous ensign removed from the walls of their temple, yet without any scruple followed it into the field. Nor is it the question whether the cross may be used in our colors as a charm to protect us from enemies, to defend us from disasters, to procure victories unto us. The faith which the Roman Catholics have in it, mentioned by Hoveden in the reign of Henry II, when England, France, and Flanders distinguish themselves by their varieties of it, ever since retained, is abominable to all real Protestants. But the question is whether the cross, as representing the cross of Christ, erected as a badge of Christianity and a sign of distinction between Christians and infidels, may by any prince or state be now in their banners reserved and employed. This they approved not, and that for these reasons. First, that which God hath commanded utterly to be destroyed should not be retained for the important uses of men, but God has commanded the cross and the banner to be destroyed. This may be thus proved. Images of idols are commanded utterly to be destroyed, but the cross and the banner is the image of an idol, and the greatest idol in the Church of Rome. The text in Deuteronomy, where this is commanded, will affect Christians as well as Jews, for the moral reason of the command still continues. If it be objected that then the temples of idols were to be destroyed, it may be answered, Theodosius made a law that they should be so. However, we may distinguish between temples dedicated unto idols and such temples as were dedicated unto God with creatures. The papists, with Aquinas, deny their temples to have been dedicated unto saints, but affirm them dedicated unto the honor and service of God for his blessings communicated by the saints, whose names are used on this occasion. These temples, being purged from their superstitious designations, may be still used for our Christian assemblies, as our Savior used the Jewish water pots to turn the water into wine, though they were superstitious purifications for which they were placed there. Again, there is no civil honor to be given unto the image of an idol. The second commandment forbids all sort of honor, not only sacred but civil also, to such an image. 
Yea, and elsewhere all mention of it with honor is prohibited. But now to advance the cross into the banner is to put a civil and no little honor upon it. It is the cross in the ensign, which does now insignere and render it ensign. And it was the intention of Constantine to honor the cross when he interdicted all executions of malefactors upon it, but improved it for his banner. Further, if the figure of the altar in Damascus might not be used as a badge of the religion and profession of the Israelites, then the figure of the cross may not be used as a badge of the religion and profession of the Protestants. For there is a like proportion. The papists regard the cross as the altar whereon our Lord was offered. Now, such a figure of an altar was unlawful to the people of God. Once more, that which was execrable to our Lord, the sign of it should not be honorable to us. But so was the cross of our Lord. It made his death accursed, nor was it a pure instrument of mere martyrdom unto him. Moreover, if the partaking of idolatrites in the places where the idols are worshipped express a communion with idols and idolaters, then the setting up of the cross in the places where idolaters do worship it, namely, in the banner, is an expression of communion in their idolatry. Tis true, such meats, when sold in the shambles, might be eaten without scruple of conscience, but besides this, that it was only a common place where these might be eaten. Whereas the cross in the banner is in the temple, where the apocalyptic Gentiles do adore it. You may add, they were creatures of God, whereas the cross in the banner is only in human contrivance. If it had been lawful for a man to have bought the silver shrines of Diana, and have caused them to be worn for the cognizance of his family or his attendants, the cross might perhaps have been lawfully used in the banner for a cognizance. Finally, if the first use of the cross in the banner by Constantine were superstitious, then the first fruits being unclean, the whole lump of the following use is also unclean. But now Eusebius will tell you, quote, that this saving sign the emperor used as a protection against all warlike and hostile powers, end quote. And Sozomen will tell you that the emperor changed the image in the Roman labarum for the sign of the cross, and so the soldiers who were accustomed to worship the heathen imperial ensign by the continual sight and worship of the cross might be weaned from their country rites and brought on to worship that god alone whose sign it was. These were the chief of the considerations that urged against the cross by the faithful that were themselves in a wilderness, now preaching and suffering under the cross. That they thus argued was not because they were those whom the apostle calls enemies under the cross of our Lord. They knew, they felt, they consented that omnis Christianus est grucianus, every Christian must be a cross-bearer. Our King Edward I was the comeliest of men, though commonly called crookback by a mistake of the name crouchback, that is, crossback, which name he has worn because of his wearing a cross on his back. 
Our good old planters had the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ laid upon their back by the manifold afflictions which they underwent for his truths and ways. But mankind will be mistaken if they imagine those blessed soldiers under the banners of the Lord Redeemer to have been of a defective stature in Christianity because of their not affecting to make the cross in their banners the mark of that Christianity. It is Catholicly, that is, ridiculously, enough given as the answer to the second question in the Catechism, wherein the French new converts are instructed, the question, whereby shall one know a true Christian? The answered, a ce qu'il fait le sang de la croix, that is, by this that he makes the sign of the cross. Our New Englanders were good Christians, but yet were loath to give the cross for the sign of their being so. They chose a better sign of it, by being themselves crucified unto the vanities of the world. That which made the cross disagreeable to them was its being the great idol of popery, which is but revived paganism. As the primitive Christians, when the pagans charged them with the veneration of the cross, answered, Cruces nec colimus nec optamus, that is, crucifixes we neither worship nor want. This might a Minutius, on the behalf of our new English Christians, have given for their answer also. If Tertullian reckoned it a scandal raised upon the primitive Christians that they were crucis religiosi, that is, cross-worshippers, You see, the new English Christians took an effectual course that they might not on that part be scandalized. 11. On the other side, they that pleaded for the use of the cross and the banner argued after this fashion. To state the question, we must know that it is necessary that there should be a banner displayed, and a banner with a cross in it serves the end of a banner as much as any other. Had the cross never been superstitiously abused, the civil use of that figure could not be questioned. But the superstitious abuse is a thing that is added unto the civil use, and accordingly the superstitious abuse may again be removed from it. Otherwise, what a desolation of bells must be produced by a just reformation of superstitions. Wherefore, If the present authority does neither appoint nor declare any superstition in the observation of any civil usage, the superstition of that usage is at an end. Thus, though it be notoriously known that many persons in authority have their superstitious conceits about churches, yet inasmuch as there is no injunction of authority upon private persons to approve any such conceits, "'Tis no superstition in such persons to use those churches unto unlawful purposes. The question then is this, whether the civil use of the cross and the banner may not be separated from the superstitious abuse of it. It seems that it may, for first, if names that have been abused for the honor of idols may in a civil way be still used, then things that have been so abused may be in like manner used for a civil distinction. But we find the names of Apollo and Phoebe and the like, used in the apostolical salutations, 
Although it had been a less difficulty for those persons to have changed the names at first sinfully imposed on them than for the cross and the banner to be now wholly laid aside. If any heathen king put an honor upon his idle bell by saying, O Belteshazzar, the Spirit of God may speak it without any honor to that idol at all. Again, it is one thing to describe a cross as an artificial thing by way of civil signification, and another thing to employ a cross as a sacramental thing by way of sacred observation. And in the banner, tis the former, not the latter way, that it is considered. When I am relating how a papist crosses himself, I may lawfully express it by making an aerial cross like this, whereas it would not be lawful for me to make such a cross upon the same ends with him. And what if the cross, as first used by Constantine, had in it somewhat unwarrantable? It follows not that the following use of it is of the same lump with the first, for if it now be used upon another design, the uncleanness is taken away. Besides, Constantine brought the cross with as much unwarrantableness into his coins as into his colors. But it is believed that most men, at this day, would count themselves very sorely crossed, and their purses very unhappy, if there were none of those crosses in them. To proceed, meats that were sacrificed unto idols might be eaten when sold and bought in the market— now a cross, as an effect of art, is a creature of God's, as well as any of the meats bred and cooked by men. And what if the banner be like the temple to the idol? One might have eaten the idolathites in a chamber or corner of an idol temple, if there had been any such, where beholders would not have been scandalized. Such were the colors of good and evil, which were put upon the use of the cross in the colors at the first settlement of the militia in these plantations. But there was nothing like a war appearing in the disputations of the good men that thus flourished the matter on both sides. All the velitations were peaceably furled up in this result that the cross was kept in the banners of castles and vessels where it was necessary, and in the banners of the trained bands it was generally omitted until it was very lately introduced. 12. 12. It will be now not improper, I am sure it will not be unchristian, in the same chapter which reports the disturbances of New England raised by Mr. Williams to relate some further disturbances of the country to the extinguishing whereof Mr. Williams very commendably contributed his assistances. For I freely express with Tully, est iniqua in omni re accusanda, praeter misis bovis, malorum enumeratio, viciorum quae selectio, that is, an unfair summing up and setting forth of evils and vices to the exclusion of what is good is reprehensible under all circumstances. Know then that in the year 1636 arrived at Boston one Samuel Gorton, who by one of the best pens in those times is described as, quote, 
a most prodigious minter of exorbitant novelties and the very dregs of familism. This Gorton continued at Boston till some directions were sent hither to demand from him considerable sums of money which he had borrowed at London, and then he removed out of the Massachusetts colony. Coming to Plymouth, he began to spread his blasphemous and enormous opinions. But being upon some civil controversy with a neighbor brought before the court, he behaved himself so mutinously, seditiously, and outrageously that he was fined and sent out of that colony. From thence he went into Rhode Island, where he affronted what little government they had with such intolerable insolences that he was there whipped and sent out of that colony. The knight-errant then made his progress over to Providence, with a misled knot of squires, where the humanity of Mr. Williams to them in that winter season was requited, snake fashion, with such cruel stings as made the inhabitants implore aid from the Massachusetts Bay. These wicked Gortonians began to seize the lands of certain Indians, which had submitted themselves under the protection of the King of England, and so such discords among the English as threatened all manner of bloody confusion. Wherefore the authority of the Massachusetts Bay, being addressed by the distressed people, sent their agents to adjust the differences which had happened and prevent the ruin of the king's interests, not merely in that, quote, fag end of the world, end quote, but in all these plantations. In the meantime, this crew of miscreants not only kept blowing up a flame of war between the English and the Indians, but also sent unto the English in the bay one libel upon the back of another, stuffed with scores of such envenomed reproaches against the rulers and churches, denials of all order, and blasphemies against every sacred thing, that the Massachusetts colony could not in this extremity do God and the king better service than by, quote, going out of their line, end quote, if it were going out of it, for to send thus unto the help of our confederates under whose weaker jurisdiction those wretches were so obstreperous and upon whose earnest application it was undertaken, to lay hold upon these malefactors as the enemies of mankind, Accordingly, being by a band of men brought unto Boston, whither Mr. Williams and his fellow planters had referred their cause, against a knot of incendiaries that had expressly declared, quote, all courts whatsoever to be idols, and the devices of Satan, and all pretended officers and lieutenants of Christ to be destroyers of the Holy One of Israel, end quote. The court proceeded unto an examination of their misdemeanors. About six of the chief ringleaders received sentence to be kept at work in so many several towns during the pleasure of the court, and they were also required on a very severe penalty to utter none of their profane heresies, except in conference with ministers or such as might be allowed thereupon to confer with them. Thus they were confined for one winter and then banished. It were endless to reckon up the frenzies of this exorbitant and extravagant generation. But they held, quote, that Christ was but a shadow and figure of what is done in every Christian, 
They held, quote, that Christ was incarnate in Adam and was that image of God wherein Adam was created. They held, quote, that our Lord's being born afterwards of the virgin and suffering was but a manifestation of his suffering in Adam. They said, quote, that man's losing of God's image was the death of Christ. They said, quote, that faith in Christ is all one, end quote. Sermons they called, quote, lies, tales, and falsehoods, end quote. Churches, their name for them was, quote, despised platforms. Baptism they called, quote, vanity and abomination. The Lord's Supper they called, quote, an abomination and a spell. And they called ministers, quote, magicians, end quote. Now, though the ministers whom they so called used all due pains to charm these adders with convincing disputations when they were in the bay, and indeed often drove them to a bay with argument, yet they would obstinately maintain their unmaintainable tenets. By the same token, that unto that nonsensical assertion of Gorton, quote, that the death of Christ was the death of God's image in the fall of Adam, end quote, it being replied by Mr. Cotton, quote, that the death of Christ was the price of our redemption, whereas the fall of Adam was not the price of our redemption, but the cause of our condemnation, end quote. The man by silence thereupon loudly proclaimed himself confounded, and yet he would not revoke or disclaim his heretical nonsense. Gorton lived many years after this, degenerated into such a beast that professedly as well as practically he declared, quote, that there is no happiness to be expected but in this life, end quote, and he would advise his followers, quote, to make much of themselves because they must have no more than what they should enjoy in the world, end quote. But it pleased God thus mercifully to deliver this his new English people from the troubles with which these pestilences did endanger them. 13. Reader, be content that the same chapter which has related the controversies that have sometimes disturbed the churches of New England about matters, the lawfulness whereof has been scrupled, should leap over half an hundred years to grasp at another of those controversies, which, as late as the year 1688, was an occasion of some further disturbance. The affinity, rather than the chronology of the thing inviting us, in this place to lodge the history of that controversy. When the Charter of New England were taken away, the governor, who with a treasonable and an arbitrary commission then tyrannized over the colonies, at length drove the New Englanders to imitate the whole English nation in an happy revolution on the 18th of April, 1689. And in the declaration which they published at and for this revolution, one article was this, quote, To plunge the poor people everywhere into deeper incapacities, there was one very comprehensive abuse given to us. Multitudes of pious and sober men through the land scrupled the mode of swearing on the book, desiring that they might swear with an uplifted hand, agreeable to the ancient custom of the colony, 
And though we think we can prove that the common law amongst us, as well as in some other places under the English crown, does not only indulge but even command and enjoin the right of lifting the hand and swearing, yet they that had this doubt were still put by from serving upon any juries, and many of them were most unaccountably fined and imprisoned. This one grievance is a Trojan horse, in the belly of which tis not easy to recount how many insufferable vexations have been contained. The Christians of New England were not the only persons that have scrupled the lawfulness of swearing tactis evangeliis, that is, with the wand of the Gospels, on and by the Gospels. Those famous divines, Rivet, Piraeus, and Vutzius, have all of them written against it. Dr. Goodwin and Mr. Nye reckoned it, quote, the worst of all the English ceremonies, end quote. And that blessed martyr Mr. William Thorpe did refuse to comply with that mode of swearing, declaring that Chrysostom long before him was against a book oath as well as he, and arguing, quote, If I touch the book, the meaning of that ceremony is nothing else but that I swear by it, when it is not lawful to swear by any creature. It is well known that in Scotland and the Reformed churches abroad, that ceremony is not used. And even in the English courts of admiralty, another form of swearing is frequently practiced. Yea, there was once an ordinance of Parliament in England for the ease of those consciences which doubted such a form of swearing. The varieties among the primitive Christians and the modes of swearing are too many, and some of them too faulty to be recited. But this I am sure of. Athanasius of old would use no right in swearing but that of lifting up the hand unto heaven. However, it may be the Christians of New England are the only ones in the world that ever suffered a formal persecution by fines and jails for bearing their testimony unto purity of worship, in that great point of worship, an oath. And perhaps these Christians might bear a part in finishing the testimony to be borne unto the laws of our Lord Jesus Christ in the world by patiently suffering this persecution, while the Quakers, who refused all swearing at all, did undergo no such hardships from the government. Now, the reasons that move these confessors hereunto are easily understood. They were of this old Puritan principle that all religious worship not commanded by God is forbidden, and that all symbolical ceremonies enjoined on men in religious worship are made parts of it. More closely, they judge that our swearing on the gospel is a swearing by the gospel, and therefore idolatrous. That this mode of swearing was originally a signification of swearing by the gospel is evident from all the interpretation which not only the old canon law, but also the old common law, explained in old precedents, has given of it. And no particular magistrate has power to put any other interpretation upon the law than what the law has given of itself. Much less can a private person do so. Yea, the mode is naturally and necessarily as well as originally a swearing by the gospel, 
for else it must signify only the presence and consent of the person that swears. But first, our statute law has positively superseded any such pretense wherein the oath of supremacy concludes, quote, by the contents of this book, end quote, and besides, there is no proportion of things to countenance that pretense. The touching of a table would signify this as much as the touching of the Bible. The Bible is a sacred thing. To put it unto a mere civil use is a profane abuse of it. In such a solemn and serious business as the dispensing of right between man and man. Why? It leaves out a respect unto the Bible which is always due unto it. With a contingent and overly act, I may perhaps look on the Bible only as a book made of paper and cover, but in a stated solemn serious act, such as a process of law, the Bible may not be singled out for a less use than what the word of the Most High God is to be preferred for. Whereas, if we take the general acknowledgment of them that swear on the gospel, they tell us tis to procure devotion, and affect them with the consideration of the rules they are to use in swearing, and the woes they incur if they use them not. Now, say we, our Lord hath directed us to do this by hearing and reading his word, not by a bare touching of it, nor may a transient motive to piety be made a stated medium. Or else they tell us tis to express devotion, tis in this way that they make their imprecation and their invocation, tis their external declaration, quote, that they swear by the God who made this book and expect the plagues written in this book if they swear a falsehood, end quote. Now, this is a way of worship which the Lord never instituted. In Finney, tis a wrong religious application in a prayer. An oath is a prayer, and a creature is in this mode of swearing applied unto, as well as Almighty God. Yea, God is applied unto through a creature, and nonconformists reckon the second commandment violated by such applications. The religious forms of addressing to God, we say, are to be appointed by none but God himself, whereas the elevation of the hand has, even for sacred as well as for civil uses, and in an oath particularly, had such unexceptionable approbation that the faithful of New England chose it, and chose rather to suffer affliction, than to use a rite in the worship of God which they suspected sinful." Reader, we will only take this occasion to recite a good passage of Dr. Owens. Quote, if, instead of driving all sorts of persons, the worst, the vilest of men, on slight or light or no occasions unto swearing, none might be in any case admitted thereunto, but such as evidence in their conversation such a regard unto the divine rule and government of the world as is required to give the least credibility to an oath, it would be much better with humane society. End quote. And now we'll pass on to other matters. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources 
and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.